0: What am I saying? Uh, hey. I thought you were starting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is Shelby. And this is Courtney. And thanks for joining us today on All Things Macab.
1: On all things macabre we discuss all the things under the topic of odd weird true crime supernatural and fiction
0: this podcast contains language and content that is not suitable for all listeners so listener discretion is advised if you find a topic we are discussing interesting we encourage you to do some research on your own you never know what you may learn We're just a couple of old friends telling each other stories that we find interesting. And hoping that you'll enjoy and laugh along with us. Through some stories that are weird, true, or fictional that will just make you say, what the fuck? And now, for the fun part. right welcome back macabre mom hi guys it's shelby and courtney it's part three of our black history month special we're already on three yes we're actually on this is our 16th episode i believe it is yeah
1: sweet 16 you remember that show
0: (laughs) (laughs) so we left off the last episode with that Really awful story of George Stinney.
1: The one that made me cry, yes. Yes,
0: and also Emmett Till getting on the train to go down to Mississippi. So, to better understand segregation around that time, let's talk about the Plessy versus Ferguson case of 1896. Have you ever heard of it?
1: Yes, I have.
0: What do you know about it?
1: Is that, um, isn't that whenever black people were allowed to have rights such as voting and access to kind of somewhat equality
0: to white people? That was back in the 1896. It's where they became separate but equal. So kind of what I said, Just segregation. segregation. So... Oh, so this is what is uh, put in
1: segregation?
0: Yes. Oh, Lord, I need they, to go back well, to Well, that they had to... It, it was legal to segregate as long as the facilities were equal. They could be separate, but they had to be equal.
1: Okay, I understand what you're saying. I'm just also realizing how
0: (laughs) bad I am at remembering history. That's That's terrible. it has been a long time, This is a refresher. I needed this. So, Homer Plessy was actually seven-eighths white and only one-eighth black. So, this also brings a little bit of the the race issue in with mixed races. He purchased a ticket and took a seat in the car designated for whites on the train. He was asked to move to the black car, but he refused and he was arrested for violating the Separate Car Act. He went to court and Honorable John H. Ferguson, the presiding judge, found him guilty and they charged him. So, Plessy filed a petition against Ferguson claiming that the law violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. You know about the Equal Protection Clause? I'm just going to say no. I'm not even going to act like I know what I know anymore. (laughs) The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment requires states to practice equal protection, to govern impartially, and to not draw distinctions between people solely on differences that are irrelevant to a legitimate governmental objective. So, this was a case in which they had a person of mixed race, like I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. and it showed that the law could not be consistently applied because it didn't define what white and colored races were. Okay.
1: And so I'm assuming since he is biracial, this is kind of bringing all this to light since they tried to punish him for riding in a white car. And he was seven-eighths white. I mean, to me, it shouldn't matter if you're a half or, you know, 0.5. Well, that is a half.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gotta think back in this time, though, if you had a drop of blood in you that was black,
1: they would consider you
0: black. And they would consider you lower class just because of that.
1: Whatever they had to do to, like you said, make you feel like you're inadequate or lesser than... Inferior. Inferior. Thank you. Yes.
0: Continue. So the Supreme Court ruled 7-1 to that the Louisiana law was valid and that racial segregation did not violate the Constitution as long as the facilities were equal to each other. That's what I was explaining a minute ago. Okay. The only one that voted against it was Justice John Marshall Harlan... He thought that segregation could make black people feel inferior, like we were saying. Which it did. And that the Constitution is colorblind and the law should not treat any one group better than the other group.
1: Okay, Mr. What did you say? John Marshall Harlan. John Marshall Harlan. Harlan. Okay. The
0: ruling stood for nearly 60 years, and this is where separate but equal became the big thing. But it's not really equal. but yeah. And no, it's not. By the early 1950s, the NAACP had actually filed lawsuits in different states to challenge segregation laws in public schools. There were like five of these cases that were really big that became known as the Board of Education, Brown versus Board of Education case. Yes. Okay. So there was one in Virginia, Delaware, Washington, D.C., and South Carolina before the one in Topeka, Kansas, which is the common one. In Virginia, it was Davis versus County School Board of Prince Edward County in Virginia. It was because all the black schools suffered from terrible conditions due to underfunding. There was no gym, cafeteria, desk, or even blackboards. Due to overcrowding, some of the students had to take classes in a broke-down school bus that was parked outside of the main building. Oh my god! A 16-year-old, Barbara Rose Johns, organized a student strike to protest the poor school conditions.
1: They had so. no gym, no cafeteria, or desk, or you know, No desk, boards. no
0: blackboards, nothing.
1: So did they stand or
0: sit in chairs the entire time? And how? Ha- no, I- they didn't even have desk. I don't know if they even had chairs. Wow. I don't know. But there was a protest from that, organized by a student. I'm very proud of her. So yes. good job, Barbara Johns. Yes, good job. In Delaware, there were two cases. There was Belton versus Jeb Hart and Beulah versus Jeb Hart. I think it's Jeb hart Jebhart. Jebhart. I'm not sure. Both of these cases stem from black parents having to travel 20 miles round trip to take their kids to a black school. These schools were also overcrowded and had incomplete curriculum and poor teacher qualifications compared to the white school. The white school was spacious and well-maintained. Buses wouldn't even come all the way to pick the kids up, even though the white bu- buses would just pass right by them.
1: So they didn't even acknowledge them, but technically, I guess, I'm not really defending anybody, but, you know, the white bus drivers considered them as not going to that school, so so of course they dropped past them.
0: So they're saying that also, like, the black buses wouldn't come out that far because they didn't have the funding, so.
1: Where the white buses could, oh, okay, could drive right past them and do everything.
0: In Washington, D.C., there was Bowling versus Sharp, which a group of parents petitioned the Board of Education to open John Philip Sousa Junior High School as an integrated school when it would be completed, which was going to be soon at that time. The board denied it, and they opened it as an only white school, and in September 1950, 11 black students attempted to get admitted to the school, but they were denied by the principal.
1: I would like to say that I'm surprised, but now I'm no longer surprised.
0: Another one, and this one was probably one of the bigger cases in the collective bit this is briggs versus elliot in south carolina now this started when levi pearson wrote a letter to the school district requesting that black children be provided with the same transportation that white children in the district had i don't see a problem with that i agree so in south carolina black children actually had to go to school and abandon hunting or masonic lodges and drafty cabins They would actually bring coal or wood to burn in oil drums for heat. They purchased textbooks that were thrown out by the white children. They didn't have restrooms or running water. In fact, they had to take water from local wells and bring it in with them. One first grade teacher had 67 students at one time. God. Another was reported to have a class of 79 students. And this is at one time.
1: 79 students.
0: Yeah. To one teacher. teacher. To one teacher. White only schools, they had class sizes no bigger than like 30 students. And of course, they were nice brick schools with heat and indoor toilets and water fountains, modern textbooks, gyms, auditoriums, and libraries. And desks. Yeah. And.
1: And blackboards. Sorry, I'll shut up. No, no,
0: they had everything. And even more, the school board reserved all 30 buses for white children, even though some of the black children may have had like a nine-mile walk one way to the nearest school.
1: Oh, my God.
0: So, of course, the black people were asking for their own buses, and the school superintendent, Roderick M. Elliott, said black citizens didn't pay enough taxes to warrant a bus, and asking white taxpayers to fund that? would it be an unfair burden? Excuse me, what? Uh, yeah. They don't pay enough taxes and it would be a un unfair burden upon white uh, people. And I didn't actually put this in there, but there was a group of parents and stuff that actually gathered up. I want to say it was like $7,000 towards the bus. And it was just so expensive to maintain and everything. So I they had to get something it. broke down. They started asking for help, and that's where they got this reply. So, yeah, it's real fucked. So, we'll jump to the one that everyone really seems to have heard of, Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Technically, like I said, all of these cases were a part in the decision-making of that case, but the most famous case tied to it took place in Topeka, Kansas. This started when the public school system refused to enroll Oliver Brown's daughter, Linda Brown, at the elementary school closest to their house, causing her to have to ride a bus to the black school that was further away. She had to walk six blocks to the bus stop, and that had to take her another mile to the school. Damn. The all-white school was only seven blocks away from her house. So, another block, she'd already be at school. Right. So, he was one of about 13 parents to file a lawsuit against the school board for similar situations. And the district court originally ruled in favor of the school board, but it was appealed to the Supreme Court. After the first hearing in the spring, the Supreme Court decided that they really wanted to hear the case again because they they just couldn't come up with it. Like, let's just, let's do it all over again. So they redid it in the fall and it led to a 9-0 vote, which, completely unanimous, They determined that the state laws that created separate schools for blacks was unconstitutional. They violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and this finally overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. But the Deep South was reluctant. Of course they were. In fact, they actually had political leaders embrace a plan known as the Massive Resistance, which was to frustrate attempts to force them to desegregate their school systems. The the Brown versus Board of Education actually had a second part to it, saying that they had to integrate their schools with deliberate speed because no one was doing it. It didn't say in the first one when they had to do it; so just now they, they had to.
1: So now they actually said like a due date that you had yeah to be it's done like by you you've got
0: to get moving on it. But the South wasn't going to let their way of life just go you know they're lazy fuckers so mississippi even tried to get some of their black southerners to just completely disavow the decision it's like oh no yeah that's bullshit now.
1: i don't know why i'm surprised because these are also the same ones that threw a fit because they didn't want to work so they wanted to keep their yes. slaves and not you know uh free slaves
0: all right so old bobo emmett till he rode the Illinois Sentinel 16 hours from Chicago to Money, Mississippi. 16
1: hours is a long it time. It is a long
0: time. And he arrived at the home of Mose and Elizabeth Wright on Sunday, August 21st, 1955. Moses, Papa Mose, Preacher, he's got a bunch of different names. You'll find that out. Okay. He was a sharecropper on a 150 acre plantation, and the landowner was a German man named Grover Frederick.
1: Grover. That makes me think Grover. of Sesame Street. Is it Sesame Street? Yeah, the, the, pretty sure it is. And that this name's little blue guy with the pink nose.
0: I think yeah, his name's yeah. Grover, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've watched any of that. <laughs> So, Papa Moe's, Uncle Mose, it's Uncle Mose a lot of times in Mammy's book, he had almost an entire acre of land set back about 50 feet away from the road and had one of the largest homes on the plantation. It was four bedrooms. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's pretty that's good. That's impressive. Moe's had stood his ground before when Mr. Grover wanted to plant more cotton where Mose had one of his vegetable gardens. hmm But Mose was like, no, nah, I, I gotta feed my family. Like... I'm sorry you can't have this. He stood his ground.
1: Good for you, Mose.
0: So there was an old story that used to go around of a cropper who went through his tallies with the plantation boss, and the boss always found a way to add and subtract things so everything came out even so he wouldn't have to pay him for his work. We've talked about this in the last episode. Yeah. One time, the cropper in the story held back one of his fields and waited for the boss to tell him that they were even. Then he was like, oh, well, I've got some more cotton to add. So the boss was like, "Well, why didn't you tell me about this in the first place? Now I got to go through the whole whole thing all over again to make this come out even." So Uncle Mose kept a log of his work and all the hours that he worked. And only one time did Mister River question him about his time. Uncle Mose—he never came out just even. He always made money. He was well respected around the area, and he had actually been a minister for years until nineteen forty nine, and that's why people called him preacher. Okay. He was also known in the area to be a, a decent and honest man that always did what he said he was going to do, which, being a man of your word, is still a big thing.
1: Yes, it's very respectful.
0: Emmett got there and spent the first thing Monday morning out in the hot, humid fields with no shade picking cotton.
1: He's never done that before, He's has he? never
0: done it, and it's not easy to pick cotton. Have you ever tried? Mm-hmm. It's... To get it clean, it's not easy. You hurt your hands. I
1: remember there were, I
0: couldn't do it. We for had a done long something time.
1: in school and they had like the little things and we picked them off. You know, we didn't actually go to a field, but they had them selling branches and they brought them yeah. to school. And we had to uh, pick them off their branch and like tear them apart or like the little seeds. Get the or whatever. seeds out in, clean them. And yeah. clean them and do all, all the stuff. It's a lot of work. It hurts your hands.
0: It does. And imagine doing this pounds and pounds a day.
1: I couldn't imagine. In the
0: sun, no shade. Humid. Think think about the heat down here. Yeah. Oh yeah. So he decided after he picked about twenty five pounds that he'd had enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. Now, this would be an automatic whipping for any of the right boys, but since it was Bo's vacation, he got a break. Since it was so hot, he wasn't used to it. He got sent back to the house, and he ha- he got sent back to the house, and he helped Aunt Lizzie. He did a lot with her. Since the work days were shorter at the beginning of the picking season, they would usually end around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they would go swimming or fishing. Oh, okay. And Bo loved doing that. Later in the week, Mammy just couldn't take how much she missed her son, so she called one of Aunt Lizzie's neighbors, because they didn't actually have a phone, mm-hmm. to check in on him. And she was told that he was, you know, a great boy. He was helping with chores. He was such a blessing. While he was there, he was helping with, like, the, the dishes and the house cleaning and the cooking and everything he was doing at home. So he was a big help for her.
1: Which I'm not surprised because, I mean, you talked about all the things that he did as a little kid, you know, prior yeah. to this. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's got surprising. great work
0: ethic. Aunt Lizzie told Mammy that Bo had actually written her a letter and said he needed more money even though she had sent him with $25. At this time, remember, she was with Gene, and she kind of expected Gene to have slipped him some extra money, too. Yeah. Just knowing him. She wondered where all the money went, but he told her that he was treating the other kids down there to sweets whenever they'd go to the store money, and he wanted his bike fixed while he was down there. He wanted her to get the bike fixed while he was down there before he got back.
1: Makes sense.
0: She actually got the letter on August 27th, about a week after she had actually put him on the train. So she did get that later, very soon after she found out about it. So on Saturday, August 27th, down in Mississippi, Maurice, Willer, and Emmett decided to take Curtis, who had just arrived from Chicago, to Greenwood because he knew some people there. They had stayed too long there, and they had to hurry back before Papa Moses got to them, because, I mean, he was going to chew them out. And a dog ended up jumping in front of the car. They were going too fast to stop. So, they all looked around. They felt a thud, you know, but they couldn't see the dog, so they just assumed it ran off somewhere. They didn't know if it was okay or not. They just couldn't see it. hmm So, Emmett pleaded with Maurice to stop the car and get out and check on the dog, but he refused knowing how dangerous it was to be on the back roads at night in Mississippi, especially Indian being black, black boys. Mm-hmm. So, Emmett actually began to cry, and no one had ever seen that before. They didn't know how to react, so they just sat Quiet the whole rest of the way. And it just really goes to show how caring Poor he is. It, that's terrible. So about 9 30 Sunday morning, august twenty eighth, nineteen fifty five, Mammy got a call from Willie May that she would never forget. Willie May, living in Chicago, was Curtis Parker's mother, the one that went down there. Mm-hmm. He had just gotten there the day before and called his mom that morning and told her that Emmett had been taken. Willie Mae called Mammy, and Mammy picked up the phone and had to say hello twice because there was just silence on the other end. Finally, she heard, this is Willie Mae, I don't know how to tell you, Bo. And that just made Mammy sit right up, like, jerked up real quick. She said, Bo what? Willie Mae what about Bo? The only thing she could say is, some men came and got him last night. Oh
1: my gosh.
0: And that was it. Like, that's all she could say. That's, That's terrifying. So. What happened? Wednesday, August 24th, around 7 p.m., Uncle Moe's was at church. Maurice Willard-Beau, Simeon, Roosevelt Crawford, and his niece, Ruthie Crawford, which they were some neighbors around the area. They were friends. They got in Uncle Moe's car, and they drove up to Money. In Money, there were no segregation signs. But that's because there were no drinking fountains. There were no buses. There were no sidewalks. So, all the dangers kind of seemed to be hidden. Everyone in the area kind of knew what was up, but... Emmett didn't know this, though, right? Because he's not from here. No, he's from the north. So, you know, you expect to see a sign if they want it segregated. Right. So, they went to Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market, a store that at the time sold to a lot of sharecroppers in the area. So, a lot of times you would see black people out front playing checkers or enjoying a nice cold drink or something. The store was owned by Roy and Carolyn Bryant, who had a small house they lived in at the back of the store. I can't really recall if it was like an apartment in the back or if it was separate or what. but okay. they, they lived with that store, basically. And they had their kids there. So, Willer was inside when Emmett walked in. Willer left, and Simeon stood at the door to look out for Emmett. Emmett paid two cents for some bubblegum, and he left. One of the versions of the story was that they were all standing around on the porch outside when they saw Carolyn come out and head to her car. They were all laughing as Emmett told everyone what he had bought. That's when a whistle was heard. Maurice told reporters later that he made a whistle when he got stuck on the word bubblegum, which you remember his mom told him? Yes. And he really had trouble with bees. So they could have been out there joking about what he had bought, trying to get him to stutter. Yes. Yes. And that whistle could have been from that. Since, as, as
1: you know, to review for in case the listeners had forgotten, his mom had told her, told him, sorry, to whistle whenever he got stuck on a certain word, correct?
0: To basically reset his breathing. To kind of, okay. Yes. So Roosevelt said that he thought Emmett whistled at a bold checker move he had seen. But whatever the whistle was for, it stopped the laughter immediately and someone noticed that Carolyn had gone to the car for her gun. So, they all jumped in the car, Maurice got it going, and everyone was nervous and yelling at him. And when they got about two miles outside of Money, about a mile away from home, they actually saw headlights following them. Oh, God. They just knew someone was coming after them, and Maurice pulled over, and everyone jumped out of the car except for Simeon, and he just, like, slid down and hid in the seat. So they looked back after running through a cotton field, tripping and falling to the ground, which we've already talked about how the cotton is, so you know it had to cut up their legs. It was probably awful. They looked back and they noticed that the car was actually still going down the road. So they were like, okay, well, I guess it's safe to just go ahead and continue home. They all kind of agreed to not tell Uncle Moe's about it because nothing had actually happened. So they didn't want to get in trouble. Emma didn't want... Papa Moe's to be upset and angry with him and he didn't want to end up getting sent back home to Chicago early. So nothing more came of it until that Saturday night slash that Sunday morning. And what day did this incident happen again? This incident happened on Wednesday, Wednesday. August twenty fourth.
1: Okay. And so they didn't say anything until they Saturday night, anything. Sunday morning.
0: Roy Bryant was actually out of town at that time on business. He didn't come back until the twenty seventh, I believe. Okay. So, when he came back, Carolyn actually didn't tell him about it.
1: So, how did he find out about it?
0: People had been talking about these black boys that had made a move on his wife, and he heard about it through other people. So, basically, telephone slash word of mouth got exaggerated,
1: because yeah. we both know that when somebody gossips, the exact details do not stay exact. So, no. this got exaggerated. Is no. is that what you're telling me? Because that's what Something I'm Something happened.
0: Something happened. So, about... in the morning, Sunday, August 28th, there was a violent beating at the door at Uncle Moses' house. Then he heard, Preacher, this is Mr. Bryant. So, of course, he got up, he opened the door, and he saw two white men standing there, Roy Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Millam. There was also a third man standing outside, a black man, but he didn't really get a good look at his face because one of the men, I think it was Millam, had a flashlight and a gun. So... I mean, it was pretty obvious you... If it's dark and you have a flashlight in your face... You can't see shit anyway. No. But he really made it obvious that he had a Colt 45 in his other hand. So, they pushed their way inside and they asked Mose if he had a couple of boys from Chicago there. He answered he did, and they demanded to have the boy from Chicago that did the talking. That did the talking. That did the talking. Uncle Mose had no idea of what had happened. Like, we've already established that. Mm-hmm. He had no idea. So he tried to offer anything he could think of to take care of it. Whether it was money or, hey, you know, just take the boy right here and whip him. That's fine. You don't have to take him anywhere. Just whip him here. But Millem just kept waving the gun around and told him that they had to take Emmett right then. Oh, my God. So they woke Emmett up and they told him to put his clothes and his shoes on. And half asleep, of course, he forgot to say, sir. And that caused Millem to become just violent, yelling and cursing at him about it. They told Emmett that he didn't need his socks, but he was like, look, I don't wear shoes without socks. So they actually had to wait on him to put his socks on, which I fucking love.
1: Bless him. <laughs>
0: He didn't realize how serious this was.
1: Right. And I'm trying not to do like I did in the last episode and cry. This, yeah. this is really getting to me. Well, I
0: told you these are and these are rough.
1: So I'm, you know, very emotional <laughs> right now at the obviously, so I if I'm quiet, that's why I'm because I'm just trying <laughs> to
0: <laughs> It's fine. I just I hope people understand this like you are. So once he got his shoes on, they marched him out of the house. And that's when Uncle Mose asked them where they were going to take him. And they replied, nowhere if it's not the right one. I'm like, really?
1: Oh, my God.
0: So they took him over to a green Chevy pickup truck with a white top. Remember that.
1: Green Chevy with a white yep.
0: top. Okay. And Uncle Mose could hear a voice that came from inside the truck. It was a feminine voice that said, yeah, that's the one. Oh, shit.
1: So they were taking these kids over to her so she could identify. Whoever them. was in the truck. Yeah. Oh my god. So
0: then, Emmett was put in the back of the truck, and Milam turned back to Uncle Mose and warned him not to tell anyone. He said, Preacher, do you know any of us? And he said, no, sir. He said, how old are you? And Uncle Mose replied, 64. Milam said, well, if you know any of us tomorrow, you won't live to be 65. Oh, shit. And they drove off. So, these guys are fucking ruthless. Just doing whatever they want. And they're using intimidation to get away with it
1: because they can
0: yeah so according to some witnesses they drove to money and took him back to the store and there they recruited two black men that worked for him and Emmett was taken to Clint Sheridan's plantation in Drew, Mississippi which was just northwest of money the whole way there they kept pistol whipping him that way they would keep him knocked unconscious you can't fight if you're unconscious so, these are gr-
1: Sorry, I didn't no. mean to interrupt you, but these are grown-ass men.
0: And how old was Emmett Amit- Fourteen.
1: He's a little, I mean, and, not really a had, little boy, but he's still a boy,
0: He though. was young, had just turned fourteen, young fourteen. So this plantation was actually a plantation that Millam's half-brother, Leslie Millam, managed. He was actually present that evening and most likely helped. That was found later on. So it was found that five black men were made to help. Whether it was to hold him it down or to clean up the mess afterwards, I don't know. But they
1: were involved. But
0: it has also been said that they didn't mean to kill him intentionally, but things got out of hand. I believe that. I, I could kind of believe that, too. I mean, it seems like these guys have a real short fuse.
1: Yes, that's why I said I can, I can see that.
0: They beat him, they mutilated him, said that he thought he was as good as the white men, and he could have a white woman too. So that would piss them off, and he would, they would beat him more, and then ask if, you know, he was still as good as them, and he would say yes. So I don't know. They, they ended up beating him and took him to the river, and they were just gonna like toss him in there. They ended up shooting him in the head, tied a gin fan around his neck, and threw him into Hatchie River. Like, it was it was insanely crazy. And the accounts of the events are words that came out of their mouths, right? Yes, and some of this, that's why it's hard for me to kind of say right here, because it's hard to get some of this out, because some of it wasn't said until years later. Right. And some of this wasn't even found out until 2017. So, it's really hard for me to kind of put the right story together with the right twist to still keep you guessing on what's up. More so, want to keep everyone immersed in the idea of how bad it was and how bad it still is. I mean, regardless, it still gets that point
1: across. But I'm just that's what I'm saying in terms of them trying to say that Emmett said this or he did this. Yeah, there's you know, that's what I was. There are several, several
0: movies. There are, there are several books. There is a ton of YouTube stuff. You can actually watch all of this play out, and you can see all the different things that might have been said, and a lot of it does make sense. You can find all the stuff that Millum and Bryant had said after the entire thing was over. It, it looks like, seriously, they were just some white men in power. Actually, I'm just going to look up this thing from, I believe it was Bryant, real quick. Okay. And I'll just read out what he said. Okay, so it was Millum that said this. And this was during their confession to Look magazine. Well, what else could we do? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. I never heard a hard R in my life. I like hard R in their place. I know how to work them. But I just decided it was time for a few people got put on notice. As long as I live and I can do anything about it, hard R are going to stay in their place. Hard R ain't going to vote where I live. If they did, they'd control the government. They ain't gonna go to school with my kids, and when a hard R gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country, and we got some rights. I stood there in that shed and listened to that hard R throw that poison at me, and I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. God damn you, I'm going to make an example of you, just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. That that was Millam. That was J.W. Millam. That is why I don't know how else else to describe what happened that night.
1: I had to (laughs) get my hand over my mouth to keep me from interrupting you. I know how to, what did he say? I know how to treat them or run them or some shit. and I know how to work them. Work them. And they need to stay in their place
0: go yeah. sit down yeah so what he's saying is oh. like, i have no problem with black people as long as they know that i'm better than they. exactly
1: and i was supposed to say you say you don't have a problem with them but then you said as long as they stay in their place and i'm like so that's outside that's out of of mind yeah so you yeah. know if they try to live breathe and you, you know god forbid that you lay eyes on them they they bug you fuck off <laughs> Just fuck all the way
0: off. Yeah, I'm It's fucked up. I, I, oh, that- So, that goes to show just how bad it was. I mean- Fucking asshole. I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was that bad. <laughs> so, for three days, Emmett was missing. The NAACP and others were searching cotton fields and such, trying to find him, figuring he was just lost somewhere. Until Wednesday, August 31st, when a white teenager had actually gone fishing at the Tallahatchie River and found him. His feet were actually kind of bobbing in the top of the water. They weighted his neck down with a gin fan, which I believe was like 75 pounds or something. But, but they didn't think about his feet. They didn't think about his feet coming up. Dumbass. Well. But, I mean, I'm glad they were dumbasses so he yeah. was
1: found. But still, sorry. Yeah. I'm, but I'm... They,
0: they tied that damn... <sighs> gen fan around his neck with barbed wire like oh my god what why you've already mutilated him anyways it was about 12 miles away from money is where this was every time you say money it takes me a minute to realize that you're actually talking
1: about a place I and know. i think of physical money
0: i think of my winter guard show back in the day yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry i got you off on a tangent again my bad continue no, you're
0: fine so his body had been badly mutilated he had been shot above the right ear His eye was hanging out of his eye socket. Oh my god. He had been beaten on his back and his hips, and he was nude aside from a ring. His dad's ring. His dad's ring. His face was so unrecognizable from the beating and spending three days submerged in the water Mm -hmm. that when Moe's was called to identify the body, the only thing that he could use to identify him was that ring. So, once he identified him, a black undertaker was called, and Sheriff Strider told him to get that body in the ground immediately. Papa Mose actually had instructions to get the body in the ground before nightfall, that same day. Sounds like a cover-up. I was going to say one so you can
1: just cover up what you did, so no, out of sight, out of mind again. sounds
0: like it. So, Curtis actually found out about this, and he told his mom, who told Mammy, who insisted no, there's a reason you're trying to get him in the bo- in the ground that day. Like, no, I want his body back up here. So she ended up contacting a very highly respected black funeral director in Chicago, A.A. Rayner. He agreed to help her figure everything out. It was going to cost her $3,300 to get his body back. Holy shit. So, yeah, that sounds like a lot even today. But back in this time... Yeah. She wasn't even making $4,000 a year, so it was almost an entire year's worth of her salary just to get his body back. But she agreed to it anyway. She can't put a price on your kid. Right. And promised that one way or another, she, she would gonna- pay Rainer back. So if she wasn't going to be able to pay it back, her the next in line was going to pay it back. Like, she was going to make sure he got paid back. So he got put on the train that Thursday night to return to Chicago. So by this time, the case had already gotten a lot of media attention and there was a huge crowd at the train station that Friday morning whenever she went to go pick up his body. Local papers, radio, and TV had been carrying the story and I Love Lucy was actually interrupted with a news bulletin when they found Emmett's body.
1: Oh, I bet all the white people hated that because, Actually,
0: know. Mammy actually got hate mail because of that.
1: I know they can't see what I just did, but I just I, rolled my I eyes. I know.
0: That's ridiculous. You messed like, up my I Love Lucy woman. I like. like I Love Lucy, but if there's something serious going on, like, it's a fucking show. I can watch it again. Right. Like, exactly. it's not a big deal. But whatever. She was so weak whenever she went that she couldn't even stand up at the moment the train pulled up. Love she her. had to be brought up there in a wheelchair.
1: That's pitiful.
0: But I understand, you know, I oh, I couldn't imagine. She wanted to get him out of the box, and Mr. Raynor informed her that they could not open the box to examine the body. Mr. Rayner actually had to sign papers, as well as many others, saying that they would not open the box, and it was sealed by the state of Mississippi. They had to make a lot of promises just to get the body out of Mississippi.
1: Well, I mean, my personal opinion is once that body makes it from Mississippi to Chicago, what they don't know I, I won't kill them.
0: Eh, well, Mamie said that she just had to look at the body. For all she knew, there could be anything in there, and she just wanted to know what they had done to her son. I mean, I agree with Mamie. I, I want to make sure that's my son, For what, first yeah, of all. Yeah, she had to know. She could not go through life not seeing what was in that box. I, I get that, because she needed closure. Yeah, yeah. She said that if he wouldn't open it, that she would just take the hammer and open it herself. It was going to get open. She said she didn't sign any papers and she dared them to sue her just to let them come to Chicago and sue her. Damn straight. She couldn't imagine a judge anywhere finding her guilty of viewing the body of her baby. And I agree with that. I do too. So, they finally unloaded the box from the train and it was just this huge box and she just lost it. She started screaming, Oh God, oh God, my baby boy, my only boy. She kept screaming, and the cameras just kept flashing off, and she reached out and stood, and she nearly fainted. Gene, you remember Gene Mobley? Mm hmm. He was standing right over her and was helping her, and others were like coming and trying to help her and keep the crowd back so she could have some air. And she decided at that moment that all she wanted to do was pray. So the ministers helped her to her knees, and she began to pray, and everyone and everything in that entire train station just got completely silent. So I told you the box was huge. Right. Like way too big for him. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of packing inside of it, including lime, which I don't know how much you know, but lime can help break down a body faster. Yes. So this was put in there. It was locked and sealed because Mississippi clearly didn't want them to see what was inside. The smell was actually so bad that you began to smell it like two blocks away from the funeral home. Which with with him being in the water, it yes. expedited the decomp- uh, the decomposition
1: decomposition <laughs> yes. process before anyway.
0: And it that. I don't know if you've ever smelled it, but it is an awful smell.
1: No, I've never. It's
0: one that you cannot explain, and you can't get the thought of it out of your head after you've smelled it. I've heard people a lot of it, and this is going to sound weird. And again, I'm getting off on a tangent, but everybody describes it as like it has like it smells sweet. Like there is a sweet rotten scent. To a it. sweet rotten, yes. Yeah, that's it's, exactly what. It's really. I don't even know how to describe it. People it's weird. say yes. Yeah. So the smell was so bad that they were actually shooting off bombs at the funeral home to keep people from getting sick from the smell. Wow. But again, you know, this body had been in a river for three days. Then it was taken out, thrown in some lime, and God knows what else may or may not have been embalmed. They don't know if it had been embalmed. I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna assume not either. And then just sent up there. I mean, it's... Well, no, technically, he probably wouldn't have been embalmed if they were, they were smelling him and he was still going through decomp. Well, you, then... s- you still go through decomp when you're embalmed. It just slows it down. Okay, well, that's what I'm saying, because this, this sounds like it's active, like- Very active. Very, To be know. smelling that bad has got to be very active. So, Mr. Rayner took her back to see the body- And Jean held one of her arms while her father held the other arm as they crossed the room and got closer to the table that held Emmett. Can I just say for
1: a minute how good of a man Jean is? I'm sorry. He is a very good
0: man. He is. When she got to the table, she said that she needed to stand alone. She glanced at the body, and it didn't even appear human to her. She stared at his feet. She decided she had to start at his feet. That's the only way she could make it through this. And she... She noticed his ankles, which she was so glad to see that they weren't fat in the back like she thought hers were. And she followed his legs, thinking of how strong they had become even after the polio battle. Then his knees that were nice, fat round knees with a rather flat, not knobby, you know, they, they were knees like hers. And She knew those knees. His skin was loose and bloated, but there were no scars or signs of violence anywhere on the front. Until she got to his chin, where his tongue was huge and just sticking out, resting there, swollen on his chin. Oh my gosh. She moved up to his right cheek, where she saw his eyeball hanging down, resting on his cheek. She could actually still see the hazel color in his eyes. I don't know if you've seen pictures of him and paid attention, but he's got a lighter color eyes. I've never... The ones I've seen are all black and white. They are black and white, but you can still see they're lighter than I'll have to look at them and pay attention again. They're very, very beautiful. She could tell that was his eye. And then she saw the other eye wasn't even there. It had been plucked out. Oh my god. I didn't know that. Then she saw his mouth and... He always had the most beautiful teeth, and she just couldn't believe there were only two left.
1: Oh my god.
0: The bridge of his nose had been chopped, and it looked like it had been done with like a meat cleaver or something. She then looked up to his ears, and that's when she realized his right ear had been cut almost in half. The top part of it was just gone. It looked like someone had taken a hatchet and just cut through the top of his head from ear to ear. And the back of his head was loose from the front part of his face. Holy shit. She actually looked for that part of his ear. And it wasn't on his body. Like, she actually looked for it. I remember reading about that. She then saw the bullet hole slightly back from his temple. And she could see the light shining through from the other side. Oh my god. And that's when she had to stop. And She said, did they have to shoot him? Because she knew that he had already be dead by then. Like, at that point, she's like, dude, this is fucking overkill.
1: Yes, I was, I mean, what she's thinking and saying is exactly what I'm thinking, because I'm, first of all, just torturing him and chopping him up, you know, and then shooting him. First of all, you shouldn't have been chopping him up anyway. They shouldn't have done any they of sh- it. Oh, yes, they shouldn't have done any of it. But the, the process and the manner that they went through and the anger that they put into this yes. and... Definitely, you know, they really did make an example of him. Like yeah. he stuck by his words and poor
0: Emmett just is he didn't know any better. He's just a kid. <sighs> so she confirmed to Gene that yes, it was Bobo. Oh, it gosh. was Emmett. She told Mr. Raynor that she wanted an open casket funeral. He looked at Emmett and then back at her and was like, you know, are you sure? And she was like, Yeah, I'm I want an open casket funeral. So, he was like, alright, well, you know, let me let me retouch him to make him more presentable. And she was like, no, I want to let the world see what I've seen. She wanted to make a point of this. So, she viewed the body on Friday, September 2nd, and Mr. Rayner had actually done some work on him anyways. He removed the tongue, he closed the mouth, he sewed the pieces of his head back together, and he removed the eye that was dangling, and he actually closed the eyelid. She told him that he did a beautiful job, and after the fact, she kind of saw why. Right. and she, she agreed with it, and she was glad that it was done. It was reported that about 5,000 people viewed Emmett's body that night. They didn't even close the chapel until about 2 o'clock that morning. Wow. She ended up leaving about midnight, but they didn't close it till about 2 that morning. So many people were coming by to see Emmett's body that they actually decided to postpone the burial until that Tuesday to give more people a chance to see him. One report showed more than 25,000 people that afternoon, and as many as 100,000 people saw him during the four days that he laid in his glass-enclosed casket.
1: That's a lot of people. It is a
0: lot of people. So, while thousands were coming to see Emmett, The pressure really started coming down on Mississippi with all the press coverage and everything. Mm -hmm. And now, Mammy allowed them to take pictures of him in the casket. That got printed and it got put out. There was outrage everywhere around the nation. So, Mr. Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam got arrested on the Sunday and Monday, respectively, before Emmett's body was found for the kidnapping. Funny. Millen was already in jail, I believe, and Roy Bryant went to go visit him in jail, and that's where he got arrested. (laughs) Dumbass. So That's what they deserve. It is, it is. Once the body was shipped to Chicago, their charges were upgraded from kidnapping to murder.
1: As they should have been. Yes,
0: absolutely. The trial started Monday, September 19th, and was held in Sumner, Mississippi, which is where Emmett's body had been found. It was a small town that had no hotels open to black people. Mamie decided to testify as well, only 13 days after burying her son. And she had to hide for her own safety, not only while she was down there, but on the way down there and back up Chicago as well. There was nowhere down there she could stay during the trial. And if she would have stayed with a black family in town, she would have ended up putting that family in danger. That's what I was thinking. So she actually ended up staying about an hour away at uh, Dr. Howard's place. He was a successful surgeon that had a huge estate in Mound Bayou. It was an all-black town that had actually been founded by an ex-slave. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, I had never heard of the place, and I could not believe that I hadn't heard of stuff like this. It was awesome to me. She had to have safe houses along the way to and from there. They basically had to treat it like the Underground Railroad. I was just about
1: to say this, that that's exactly what it yeah. was making me think of.
0: And the reason was there was actually talk about state troopers targeting black people who were involved in civil rights organizing, and they would even pass the license number along to some of the KKK. Oh, my God. And some of the KKK would have these people called Night Riders or some shit. But anyways, they would go wait out on dark, lonely roads where these people would be driving and they'd jump out and kill them, shoot whatever. Which is another
1: them, reason why uh, Emmett's cousins,
0: when they hit the dog, couldn't stop. Because yes. Because that could have they, been a they, thing. They could have gotten killed. They never know. So Mamie's biggest concern of the trial at the courthouse, I'm just going to let you hear it in her own words. What was my concern in the courtroom? More or less a matter of getting in and out alive every day. It was quite heated in that courtroom.
1: So, I think that's pretty fucking crazy. It is. I mean, because not only does she have to worry about her safety, but... I mean, you know, she's talking about getting to and from, but I would also be scared of while I'm in the courthouse, somebody trying to do something to me,
0: you know? Oh, yeah, because they're all... I mean, first of all, I don't even think I have to say it, but... It's an all-white male jury. hmm You already know where this is going. Wait until you hear the jokes in court. In fact, ready for this. It starts before court. A black man named Frank Young said that he knew of two witnesses of the crime that were employees of Leslie Millum, Levi Collins and Henry Lee Loggins. Sheriff Strider actually booked them in Charleston, Mississippi, to keep them from being able to testify. So there's the start of the joke. Ye, yeah. Ugh. The trial lasted for five days and had the courtroom filled to capacity with 280 people in there. Damn. Segregated, of course. Of course. Black reporters were required to sit in the black section, which was far away from the white press, and it was further away from the jury. Which
1: I'm assuming that the white press was, you know, right there front and center and I, uh, was able they, to get all the oh things. Yeah, and...
0: Oh, yeah. <sighs> Sheriff Strider, I, I, I don't like Sheriff Strider.
1: Okay.
0: He's so, a big, fat, balding white man just like everyone else in the story. Okay. The I don't like fat, him.
1: So, fuck Sheriff Strider, guys. Fuck it.
0: Strider, we don't like Disrespectfully. him. Disrespectfully. Very, with a cactus. He would actually. He got wind of being told to be more friendly to the black people there. Okay. Because he was you know there was so much media involved in everything he didn't
1: do that but okay
0: well actually he would come back and see black people after lunch and be like oh hello hard r like what in fact let me just let me just play for you what really summed up who he is to me i'm not ready for this but okay we never have any trouble until some of our southern niggas go up north and the NAACP talks to him, and they come back home. So, that's all I need to know about him. That's it. What you got? I
1: don't have anything nice to say. But I don't either. So, I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut. That that just really pisses me off, you know. They just go up north, and the NAACP talks to him, and then we gotta problem. Well, fuck
0: off! Well, the problem is you, right? one,
1: but... Nobody died and made you king, but Okay.
0: It was over a 100 degrees in the courtroom, and Judge Curtis Swango... Swango. He would actually sip on an ice-cold Coca-Cola and told the men in there that they could take off their jackets, you know, because it was hot. Vendors squeezed through. That's why when you see pictures, all the men are just, like, in a white button-up instead of suits and stuff. Yeah, okay, because I made a comment... Oops. Because I made a comment
1: about that and i said well you know i'll just look at him we know when oh, a yeah. video pulls up because yeah. they're all just chilling and sitting there and i love how the judge is you know just sitting on you know sipping his ice cold coca-cola right if like, this is a fucking murder trial well, and you're just chilling kicked back to all relaxed, like it's a nice hot you ready day. for this one they
0: had vendors squeezing through the crowd in there to sell drinks this is not a sporting <laughs> event to the white people though to they wouldn't sell them to the black people
1: God. But again, like I say, this is not a fucking sporting event where no. you're like, here's
0: your pretzels, here's your hot dog, you want a cold beer to go right. with that? Like, what? Speaking of which, the jury members were even reported to have been allowed to drink beer on duty. Are you fucking kidding I me? I am so serious. So, oh, here is God. the circus, right? Bryant and Millum were sitting up front with their wives and had their sons running around, playing where the attorneys were actually questioning people. Like, they were just running around, oh, ha, 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 my kids... Yeah. It's interrupting everything. It's keep, keep in mind that this was a time when black people could register to vote, but southern whites wouldn't allow them to in several different ways. Jim Crow laws were kept very close to mind with them still, and they would still try to enforce them with lynchings. The defense tried to claim that the body pulled from the river could not positively be identified and questioned if Emmett was even dead at all. Really? Really. They claimed that Bryant and Millam had actually released him the same night they kidnapped him, and said that Moe's couldn't even identify the men that took him because there were no lights on in the house, only the flashlights that were carried by the men. Bullshit. Moe's testified against them. Good for him. He actually stood up in court and pointed his finger right at them, and said that that was the two people he was accusing of taking Emmett that night, that is a death sentence in the South at this time. You don't point at a white man and accuse him of something like that.
1: Even though he did it, but, you know, still Well, yeah, uh, even get, though
0: he did it, yeah. Right,
1: I get what you're saying. So he's putting himself at risk by doing Very
0: that. much so. In <laughs> fact, I didn't put it in my notes, but after that, he actually slept in his truck and somewhere else other than his house until ultimately he ended up moving up, I believe, Chicago. Wow. Yeah, he he was known to be one of the most remarkably courageous testimonies of the time because of that. And he lived through it. So. Mamie testified in court that she told her son to watch his manners in Mississippi, and if a situation ever came up and he was asked to get on his knees and, and ask for forgiveness from a white person- to do it. Do it. Do it without a thought. Just do it. The defense actually questioned her identification of her son, which- Caused her to relive going through the horrors again. It was only two weeks ago. Yeah, like
1: you said, basically two weeks ago. And that's re-traumatizing.
0: I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you. Yeah, well, not only that, they actually showed her a picture of him right when he was pulled out of the river, which was worse than whenever she saw him. So they were just tormenting her right on the stand. That's the way I see it. I, I can't believe that. They then asked her about having a life insurance policy on him. Oh my god. Well, shit, she did. She had two. But together, they only totaled up to about $400. Wow. So you remember how much I said she makes in a year? Yeah. Less than 4,000. 4, What's $400 going to do? That's nothing. No. Especially to lose your son, no. So, let's throw that idea out the window. They actually accused her of working with the NAACP to dig up a body from a cemetery, plant the ring on it, and throw it in the river, faking his death, and the Emmett was alive and well with Mammy's father in Detroit. Oh my god. Funny thing is, her father was actually sitting in the courtroom during that time. So, he wasn't even in Detroit. <laughs> they actually talked about the funeral being made a circus event they made a circus event out of it. That's why I keep calling the courtroom a circus a circus because I think they're the circus, yes. Because uh, I mean,
1: the way that Mamie did it was to, you know, get recognition for her son, to get awareness of her son, awareness of, of and what information. Had happened, where as this court proceeding, it's literally like I said, they're treating it like a sports event of have your cold beer, you know, you want a hot dog, and it's and letting your kids run around while the attorneys are questioning other people. It's just a fucking shit
0: show. It, it really is. So Sheriff Strider, you remember that guy? Yes. And don't forget, he's the one that told Mose to bury the body that night. Yes. Don't forget, he's the same guy. He actually testified that the body retrieved from the river looked more like a grown man than that of a young boy. And it had to have probably been in the river for 10 to 15 days. Too long to have been the body of Emmett, who would have only been in there for three. And it could have been a white man. They couldn't tell because of the decomp. So they had Dr. L.B. Oatkin... He said that the body could have been in the river for up to two weeks, and it was so bloated that a mother couldn't have even identified him. So they're bringing experts, quote-unquote, to come in and say this shit. Then they had the embalmer, H.D. Malone. He said that it looked like the body had been in the water for up to 25 days, and that it was bloated beyond recognition. Funny thing, whenever I was reading this part in that book, Death of Innocence by Mamie Till Mobley and Christopher Benson, she actually said that it seemed like as the experts went on that if it would have kept going on, that body could have been in there since the Civil War. That's what I was saying. Yeah, they just keep pushing it back. Like, I've learned a lot in my years of forensic studies and the water definitely does do something to the body. It does. Definitely. I mean,
1: eventually, you know, it's what. Um, and I learned this from morbid, you know, because Alana is a autopsy, autopsy yeah. technician, and she had said that you know when a body is in the water for a certain amount of time, it's called something uh, known as skin slippage, mm-hmm. and you know it causes the skin to uproot from you know the bones yeah. and everything, and it literally will slide off.
0: Which Emmett did have some of that going on. And so I mean,
1: I I see what you're saying, and the point that they're trying to prove. There's no point in it. You know, there's a bullshitting.
0: And- yes, absolutely. <laughs> They're just trying to make some shit up, trying to to turn it around to cover their own asses. So Willie Reed, he actually testified the next day. He was so terrified and so quiet that the judge had to ask him to speak up several times. This is the first time this guy's ever been in a courtroom, and it's got to be intimidating as fuck. Yeah, especially whenever you're telling me
1: how it's going and, you know, it's not a normal, you know, air quotations,
0: normal court proceeding. No, no. Willie said that about 6 a.m. Sunday, August 28th, he was sent to the store to get meat for dinner and took a shortcut by walking across the Sheridan Plantation. That's where they took him in in that shed. Mm -hmm. He got to the road just about the same time that a truck passed when he noticed it because it was so friggin' early in the morning. It was a green 55 Chevy with a white top. That's the truck that you told me to remember. That's the truck I told you to remember. There were four white men in the front and two black men and a young black teenager in the back of the truck. On his way back from the store, he he cut across the plantation again and saw the truck parked outside of a shed attached to a barn. No one was in the truck, but he heard sounds of painful screams and, quote, lots of licks coming from the shed. You, I mean... (laughs) You come from slave time right then, so I get that. Then it got quiet, and he saw J.W. Millam walk out of the shed to a water pump and take a drink with a pistol in the holster on his waist. He went to a neighbor's across from the shed, he as in Willie, and he asked her what was going on, like, who was getting killed in there, and he decided, alright, well, I'm gonna go back and get a bucket of water. When he got back to that water pump, the screams had actually died down, and he noticed a little later... That the truck was backed into the shed with something wrapped in a tarp and placed in the bed. Oh my God. He had known it was Emmett because he had actually seen his picture in the paper and he remembered that he saw that picture days before. He just, he knew it was Emmett. He ended up being so fearful for his life that this, this poor kid not only moved to Chicago in the middle of the night after the jury issued its verdict, but he also changed his name to Willie Lewis, which he actually did find out due to his birth. Father or something, his name was Willie Lewis, but he went by Willie Reed, okay, but he officially changed it to Willie Lewis, which helped him hide as well. He began working as a surgical orderly at Chicago's Jackson Park Hospital in nineteen fifty nine He actually retired there forty seven years later. He didn't die until two thousand thirteen. Wow, you remember how I keep saying this shit is not as history as we think. Yeah, he died two thousand thirteen. That's that's nine years, that's ten years ten ago Ten years now. ago, yeah. So this, I mean, Emmett could still be alive. That's crazy to think about. It is very crazy to think about. So let's talk about old Carolyn Bryant. Fuck her. She testified in court, only the jury was excused for te- her testimony. They uh, actually didn't let her testimony be admissible in court. She said it was after dark when Emmett came into the store and strongly gripped her hand when she held it out to collect the money from him. She said she jerked it away with much difficulty, and he said, How about a date, baby?
1: Oh my god.
0: So she tried to walk away, and he grabbed her by the waist and said, You needn't be afraid of me. i fucked white women before. And she claimed that she was scared to death. I don't believe it. I I don't believe it. No. Even though Judge Swango ruled her testimony inadmissible, everyone knew that the jury had already undoubtedly heard her story anyways. I mean... it's a small white town
1: and i was just thinking that and it's all white men that's in the jury right yeah and then you have her saying you know taking from her account that Emmett said to her you know don't worry you know you don't have to worry about me you know i've had sex with other white women before that's automatically gonna piss them off because they're not gonna forget that no and she knows what she's saying she knows what she's doing she
0: is definitely setting this shit up knowing what was gonna happen
1: And nobody really was there to kind of recount the actual events. And regardless if they did, they were more than likely black. And they were not going to really be given, you know, a snowball's chance in hell of really telling the truth. And so, of course, you know, we all know it
0: happened. And like I said, there have been stories coming out for years afterwards. And the boys that were with him at that store Mm -hmm. said that there was no way that any of that could have happened. Because there was someone with Emmett that whole time. He paid for his bubble gum and he left. He didn't do any of that. I know he didn't because I've heard the people who were with him right. say it. So jurors set out for deliberations and the sheriff elect Dogan actually told the jurors to wait a while before coming out to make it look good. Make it look good. <laughs> Are you serious? Like, obviously, even Mammy already knew what the verdict was going to be, and she decided she didn't want to stick around for a not guilty verdict. Right. So she went ahead and left for Chicago. I'll be damned. They returned 68 minutes later to announce their verdict of not guilty. Six weeks after the murder trial, a Laflore County grand jury refused to indict Brian and Millam on the kidnapping charges. So... They got off scot-free. They got off completely scot-free. And they were surprised. They were actually surprised. Even a lot of the white people in Mississippi were surprised because they had confessed to the kidnapping. They didn't confess to the murder, but they They had confessed confessed to the kidnapping. There's too much evidence. They had confessed. And they still got off. No no problem. They actually sold their story of abducting Emmett and the murder in 1956 to Look Magazine for about $3,500. Which is about a tenth of what it would be today. It actually offended a lot of the people that helped them with their legal defense, but they couldn't be charged because of double jeopardy. See, that's something
1: else. Is you know that just goes to show that they did all this for clout. I mean, really, they did. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter who said what, who tried to defend them, even though they
0: were guilty. Regardless. Oh, I. They took. The I sh- didn't even put in the notes. Everyone in the South wanted to defend them. Of course. Everyone, especially Mississippi.
1: I personally feel like if they would have confessed to killing him, they still would have got out scot- scot-free. I really do. Like, they may have got a small little slap on the wrist, like, to, like, what would be today's equivalent of probation, you yeah, know? yeah. I really think that regardless if they would have been truthful and actually said what the fuck happened, nothing would have happened to him any damn way.
0: Well, there there is a lot of controversy about that, and I'm actually going to touch a little bit further on that. However, I also didn't put this in my notes because this Ended up getting so long. Whenever I said I was going to research Emmett Till, I did not know it was going to be five or six hours. (laughs) But, so one of the things I learned researching this that I didn't put in there was there were a lot of even white Southerners that were actually on Emmett's side. They wanted to see this happen. But the NAACP, they put a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And I don't think they meant to, but I get it. They said that Mississippi was just basically lynching kids and they went on into this thing basically talking bad about Mississippi. They ended up, even the ones that thought that these guys should go down for this crime, Mm -hmm. they turned their back on it and they wanted to see them released just for principle. So, it it was a pretty fucked up thing. This whole thing is fucked. Well, yeah. So, we'll just kind of jump through... Because I don't give a fuck about these guys, really. Right. Not for real.
1: They don't need any more recognition of what the fuck they got. No,
0: but I think that you're going to like this. So, J.W. Millam, he actually lost all of his black employees. Good. And he had to pay the white workers more, which caused him ultimately to lose his farm. Can we say karma? Yes. He actually had to start traveling to look for work. So, about three years after the trial, he was reported to be seen in a breadline trying to get food from the welfare system. He denied it, but I hope to God he fucking was. Oh, I'm
1: sure he was.
0: And he was living in a tenant house on a plantation owned by a Citizens Council member. While he was living in Greenville, Texas in 1969, he was convicted for writing a bad check, and he was fined $55. Three years later... He was convicted for using a stolen credit card, and not only was he fined $300, but he was sentenced to 60 days in jail. Damn! Four months after that, he was convicted of assault and battery, fined $30, and sentenced to 10 days in jail. He returned back to Mississippi, where he found work as a heavy equipment operator until he found out that he had cancer. (laughs) It was a long... Very painful battle that he lost on New Year's Eve of 1980 at the age of 61. Serves him right. Yes. So, karma got him. For the most part, I think he could have suffered a lot more.
1: I I agree.
0: Now, we're going to talk about Roy Bryant. So, his stores were boycotted because I don't know if you remember me telling you earlier, it mainly served the black families in the area, the sharecroppers and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, they boycotted it. I mean, Much you should have seen that comment. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually forced to close three weeks after his release from jail. Damn. <laughs> he moved to Indianola in Sunflower County where he got a job as a mechanic and then he attended welding school nine miles away. But in 1985, it was reported that welding made him legally blind, which I find hilarious because I've actually seen people get welder's flash and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I know the reason that they're getting it is because they're not using their safety equipment right. I've got very sensitive eyes, and I'm okay. He suffered from optic nerve degeneration in both eyes. But his left eye was actually worse because a small piece of steel became lodged in it. Yeah. Damn! So, something that I found really crazy about him, before the whole welding thing, he actually tried to become a cop. Really? Really.
1: I mean, I'm not surprised. But but
0: you know. no one no one would take him. I mean, Good. like, he would apply to a couple of different places, but they were like, mm, no. Just whatever he could do to kind of boost and stroke that ego a little bit more. Yeah, basically. So they moved to Texas, where he welded for a while, until they moved back to Mississippi in 1973. Pretty uneventful. <laughs> he went back into the grocery business, taking over a small store that had been run by family members. Their marriage, however... It was deteriorating. Carolyn left him in 1975 and filed for divorce, with her reason being that he was guilty of habitual, cruel, and inhumane treatment of her and habitual drunkness. So, he was a drunk piece of shit.
1: Um, yeah, thank you. I was just about to say that.
0: I mean, that's the only thing I can come up with.
1: Good for Carolyn,
0: though. Oh, yeah. Well, I still think she's a piece of shit, too, but...
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot Carolyn's the one who did this. But I'm glad
0: that she dumped his ass. In 1978, he actually lost his permit to handle food stamps for a year because he was allowing people to get non-food items with him.
1: Oh, my God. People
0: still do this to this day. I didn't know this was going on back in 78. In 1982 the Inspector General's office at the U.S. Department of Agriculture found out that he had actually been purchasing food stamps at a discount for cash and then selling them back to the government at full value. Holy shit. So, in 1983, he was indicted on five counts of food stamp fraud and ended up paying a fine of $750 giving and was given only three years probation because he is a good citizen of Ruleville. Oh my god. He has been disabled and has been in very poor health a number of years, who has attempted to work despite that circumstance and to be gainfully employed in the course of his running his own store.
1: Let me just break out the world's smallest violin. You're right. Who fucking who? So,
0: of course, he promised to obey the law, Uh but he got caught again in 1987. Surprise, surprise. He was buying food stamps at a cash discount. Well, damn, look at that. This time, he got two years in prison, but he only served eight months of his term. Can we say bullshit?
1: Of course, he's not gonna fucking learn anything. No.
0: He began to battle cancer and diabetes in 1993. So, he got cancer too? He got cancer too. And it ultimately ended up killing him September 1st, 1993 at the age of 63.
1: Can I just say, I think Emmett came back, you know, and like spiritual wise and was like, fuck I'm going to make sure you. these, yes, I'm going to make sure these motherfuckers get theirs. You well, know. my
0: thing is, you let these guys go on a murder and these motherfuckers still go on and keep doing bad shit. Right. Like Which they're still getting arrested and doing illegal shit and getting away with it. It just proves that they're just fucking shitty people. So, the one I hate the most. Old Strider. In 1957, Sheriff Strider actually narrowly escaped an assassination attempt in the front seat of his car at a store in Cowart, Mississippi. That attempt on his life kept him from running for office again because he was terrified. He wasn't going to do it. As he (laughs) should be. He actually became chairman of the State Game and Fish Commission. Then he won a special election to the state senate in 1965 where he represented Granada, Busha, and Tallahatchie counties for the next five years. In 1968, he admitted on the senate floor that he paid for votes during his 1951 Tallahatchie campaign for sheriff. Oh my god. He paid out a total of 30 Thousand dollars for blank absentee ballots for people that wouldn't be present on election day. Thirty thousand fucking dollars. So this old white man here, he loved hunting deer, right? This old white
1: man here. <laughs> yeah, he loved
0: going out hunting deer. Well, he was out hunting deer, December twenty seventh, nineteen seventy, when he died of a heart attack. <laughs> <That's> so- <laughs> Judge Swango. He remained on the bench for the next 13 years. Damn! Until a respiratory condition sent him to the hospital, followed by several months of treatment for tuberculosis, where he died in 1968. He was divorced, he had no children, he was only survived by his mother and a brother. So So he died a lonely piece of shit too. So
1: all of these people... Yeah. In some form of way, for, former fashion, you know, had karma hand their asses, you know, right back to them on a silver platter. Eventually. As they all deserved. Yeah.
0: So Carolyn Bryant, she she's a little different. Fuck her. I agree. After divorcing Roy in 1975, she remarried at least twice. I didn't get a whole lot on it because I really didn't care. Yeah, who gives a shit? Griffin Chandler in 1984 died three and a half later after they married. Then she married a former Leland police officer, David Donham, in 1988. They eventually divorced a few years later. Again, don't really give a fuck. In 2007, a senior research scholar at Duke University was doing research on a murder for a book. She stated in an interview with him that the story that she told her husband, the police, and the testimony in court was false. She even went on to say nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. Oh, so
1: now you say something.
0: Now you say something. Funny, I don't have this in here, but she wrote a book. I believe it was about 2007 or so. I was going to say, didn't this bitch write a book? And it was supposed to come out after her death. But it got leaked, didn't it? It got leaked. So it's out there. And this bitch is still alive. And as far as I know, she is currently living with her son in Kentucky. She suffers from rheumatoid arthritis. She is losing her eyesight. I believe she's on oxygen, and it looks like she's very reliant to get on get around in a wheelchair. I thought she was dead. <coughs> well, she she is very old at this point. I, I don't. She's in her nineties. I want to say, but I wanted to get these assholes out of the way because I'm I'm tired of talking about them. They, they're they done. Like right. it Now we can talk about what changes Mammy brought about and how Emmett's death was really the inspiration behind an entire movement. It even ties into Rosa Parks. So there was some good that came of it. Carolyn Bryant, a little more on it. The FBI did more investigation later on. I want to say it was like 2005 or something. But... They actually ended up saying that they didn't want to go through with an indictment. So. Why? They just don't. Is it because she's elderly? That is why they're doing it. But I want to say that's bullshit because there was a Nazi that was as old if not older than her that got arrested for his Nazi crimes. And I'm sorry, but. You've already heard me. This puts you in the same category as Nazis for me.
1: Right. And I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean,
0: who really gives a shit how old she is? I don't really give a fuck about her, you know? And she, she can live out the rest of her 70 days in jail for all I care. Right. She should still have to pay She's, for what she did. Exactly. Her lies, knowing this time especially, her lies got that boy killed.
1: And the fact that she admitted it, that nothing that he did could justify what happened to him. You said it yourself, so therefore you say that you know what happened, you know that it was wrong, so therefore some repercussions should happen. She shouldn't get to be away, you know, live no. you know, a happy life, scot-free, just because she's fucking old.
0: No. I'm going to try to leave this episode off a little better. Now you got to at least hear the karma that happened to some of these motherfuckers. At least the other two got cancer and died a miserable death. True. Very but true. But I'm going to leave this off here. And on the next episode, we are going to pick up a little more about what Mammy did and how Emmett helped change a lot of stuff in America.
1: Okay. So we're going to, again,
0: pay attention to the people who
1: deserve the attention and the respect. and And not
0: these entitled wannabe motherfuckers. Yes. Can't do it. So, until then, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I put a lot of work into it. And I got a lot of work put into the next episode already. So, let us know what you think.
1: I don't know what to say because I'm just still in shock and a lot of emotions, you know, going through this. But I will say really quick. I do respect all the time and the devotion that you've put into this and the research because you've opened my eyes more to it, you know. That's my only goal. And I feel that the listeners too, you know, I'm going to speak for them because, you know.
0: (laughs) They're not speaking (laughs) to us. They're not speaking to us. (laughs) Let us know, guys.
1: (laughs) But I feel that they too agree with this, you know. And I think you you're giving it the justice the justice that it deserves.
0: I hope I am and I would really really love for some of you out there to reach out and let me know if you think I am. It let me know if you learned something new. I don't care if you're white, black, Mexican, I I don't care.
1: Or a purple people eater.
0: I we have people that listen to us in Ukraine, England, Netherlands, Thailand, the UK, don't forget about the UK. Well, oh. that's England. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have people listening to us all over, and this doesn't just apply to white and black people.
1: No, for real. The,
0: yeah. These rights should be for everyone. I agree. But let us know if you knew any of this stuff. Let us know how detailed it got for you. Let us know if there's something I missed, because I know there's actually a lot in here that I wanted to put in, but... Man, we'd be talking about this for next three years. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't do it. I had to let some stuff go. I may have to save some for next year. There you
1: go. Yeah, we can do kind of like a part two of the part four, you know. part
0: four, <laughs> four, part
1: two, you know, whatever.
0: But until then.
1: Thank you guys for listening. And, you know, as Shelby said, listen to what she said and the stories that she's put into this. And let us know if we missed anything. If you enjoyed it, be sure to let us know. Continue to send in your stories, your recommendations, whatever you feel like we're looking into. Once we get done with this, we're going to go back to normal programming. Yes, and, we are. And, you know, get into, you know, some of the stories that some of our listeners have requested. We haven't forgot about you, I promise. No. This just needed the devotion that, you know, it deserved. And yes, so we decided absolutely. to, you know, take time to focus on this. So we haven't forgot about you. They're coming.
0: But I think that's all I have to really say. That's about all I've got, too. So until next time. Thank you, everyone. See ya. All research is done by Shelby Hudgens, Courtney Pylon, and Tina Collins. A special thanks to Tina Collins for managing us, and we are a lot to manage. All social media is linked in the description below. Be sure to follow us, and don't forget to leave a rating on wherever you get your podcast. If you have an interesting topic that you'd like to hear on our podcast, please email it to allthingsmacab.pod at gmail.com. That's M-A-C-A-B-R-E. Did this episode make you say, What the fuck?